0: Hey everyone, this is Michael. For this episode, I interviewed a friend and colleague of mine here at Dartmouth College, Carrie Nadell. As you'll hear in our discussion, Carrie has a deeply interdisciplinary background, which spans theoretical and empirical aspects of ecology and evolutionary biology, as well as molecular and cellular biology. The main reason I was interested in talking to Carrie is based on our shared intellectual interest in understanding the factors that affect the ability of a set of agents to resolve collective action problems and produce the public goods that they all rely on. Carrie and I are also members of the same interdisciplinary PhD program here at Dartmouth. And so we also talked about the challenges and opportunities posed by interdisciplinary work. But to start our conversation off, I asked Carrie about his background and how he got to where he is in the first place.
1: Yeah, my background is is mixed and it's, and I really am, I'm very grateful for it now, but it's kind of an accident of history. Um, I, I started grad school with the the basic interest in the evolution of cooperation. I was, I was particularly interested in the theory, like there was something just natively interesting to me about this. I think there's something natively interesting to everyone about it, to all, to humans. Cause it's a problem. Cause it's a problem and it's something that are, I think we evolved to kind of navigate. So we all natively kind of like the subjects, and it was, it was a deep problem in evolutionary theory at the beginning. And then there were some really major advances in the, the, the early 20th century, and then with Hamilton and the in the mid 20th century and it just kind of exploded into one of the crown jewels of evolutionary theory. And I just thought it was the coolest. I just, I just, I don't really know why I I love the subject so much. I just, you know, sometimes you just, you just like things. Yeah,
0: Um, well, sometimes people say like, you don't choose the topic, the topic chooses you. It can feel like that. Yeah. So I'd love to kind of go back to the beginning a little bit though, and also, you know, how you got into the career that you're in now. Cause I do have this sense that you, Maybe I'm projecting onto you a little bit, but you—you you seem to me like the scientist scientist. You know, when I think about your professional identity, like you are doctor scientists. I don't.
1: Well, that's I. I think I guess that's flattering. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Well, thank you. That's. I feel like that's sweet of you to say. I, I was. I was. I was kind of a nerd growing up, right? Like I. I was just. I really loved school, and I grew up in the suburbs of New York. I always really liked science. From as far as, from when I can remember.
0: Yeah, mean I guess that's the question, right? Is this is this something that's always kind of been a part of you that's made sense about you?
1: I don't remember having a concrete sense that I I knew I wanted to be a scientist until I was in high school. When I was in like elementary school, I I, I just kind of was a, a nerdy kid, and then in middle school, I was still a nerdy kid, <laughs> and and then I was really lucky in high school to have. Um, one teacher in particular a mentor who had a really huge impact on me his name was jeff jennings and he was a passionate biology teacher and an, and a passionate evolutionist like he, he studied evolution in, in detail privately that's not you know that wasn't the majority of the class of course because it's high school biology you're you're learning a really broad variety of things but um but he really, really loved evolution and, and I just caught it. I just caught it. Like I just caught the bug from him.
0: Let me ask you a question there already. I mean, I think this is already going to be like a two hour long interview, but so many people have stories about someone like that, a uh, Jeff Jennings. What makes someone wake up in the morning and just think to themselves, I want to share my passion with all these other people and get them to, to see what's amazing about this subject. Cause I don't think that's super common. What do you think it was about him that made him want to do that? Do you have any sense?
1: To be honest, I'm not totally sure. I think that, and he was, he, it's interesting. And I hope, I, I wonder if he'll ever hear this. I haven't talked to him for maybe, uh, I don't know, 10 years, but he, he was kind of a, to me at this point, he, he was a mysterious figure. Like he, he worked at my school for three years and I took a class with him every year. So his first year he taught freshman biology and I I took that class and then There was another teacher teaching the AP biology course Like the 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 second level biology course at my school, but she was taking a sabbatical. So so uh, Jeff was going to teach it just that one year and I wanted to take the class with him because I liked him so much And so I took you had to take chemistry before you could take AP biology so I took chemistry over the summer somewhere else so i could take the course with him and then in my junior year of high school we did like a a one-on-one class where we was like a journal club but we would read articles together and then and then after that year he left he went to he taught in hawaii and i think he taught there for two years and then he came and then he taught in maryland for a while after that so he moved around a lot and 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 I've, i've had it's hard to keep in touch with him he's kind of a the, like a mysterious figure in my life who, who, who moved around a lot and and just mysterious had, and important had a gigantic impact on my on on my whole life yeah yeah well yeah so i don't know it's to me that like the, there's there's almost kind of an artistry and it's like there's some people who just have a lot of energy about something and they have to get it out and yeah. that's and there's and there's there's no real accounting for it it's just there. It's just there. Yeah, and I, th- I think that, I imagine like, that most people have that energy about something. It's just they're either on the way, they either have found it or they are on the way where they haven't found it yet. I would like to think that everyone would have the gift of, of that kind of pleasure of, of, of being incredibly passionate about something and, and, and needing to get it out. But that's the sense that I got from Jeff and the sense that I get from all the colleagues that I admire. Including yourself, like here and here at Dartmouth, is that the pe- people just have this—they have this excess of of curiosity and energy, and they it, they need to get it. They, like they need to get it out, and the, and they get it out by 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 teaching, by by doing research and teaching people.
0: Hmm. After you got inspired by Jeff, where do we go next? After
1: high school. So I read a lot in high school. Stuff that this teacher recommended in particular, I read. Um, I read books by George Williams. I read books by um, Richard Dawkins. Um, some stuff by by Bill Hamilton, and I was just I was really really hooked on evolution and social evolution in particular on on cooperation and conflict, and uh, a lot of these people had either been trained or worked at Oxford, and and so because of that I, I wanted to go there to be in the place that they were or the place that they had been and that's very romantic yeah i mean i don't know <laughs> you know i was 17 so <laughs> I, i'm not sure it wasn't necessarily the best place for for me to go although i really enjoyed i love my time there I feel very lucky that i could go there um but i found uh so Oxford is organized in a in a college substructure, and the colleges are actually independent entities, and each one has a person who's in charge of supervising the students for each subject in that college. and so i fo- I found one of these advisors that, they call them tutors there. His name is Tim Guilford, and he uh, was a, he was a student with um, Bill Hamilton and Richard Dawkins, like these two people who are like like intellectual like heroes to me. So mm-hmm. as as soon as I saw this, and he had published papers on cooperation, so I wanted to go like study with him. And he didn't work on cooperation anymore. He worked actually on um, collective uh, migration. He worked on on bird on pigeon navigation. So not the, not the not the same subject at all. But but I just wanted to to kind of learned from him since he had been in the orbit of, of these folks that I really admired so much. And so, so, so I was, so I was lucky to, to get in there. And then, and, and so that's where I spent the next three years in in England.
0: So it was a three-year program.
1: Yeah. The, a lot of the undergrad degrees are a bit, are shorter over there because you, you pick one major before you start. So there's no, like broad curriculum requirements or, or anything. Yeah, like yeah. That. You, just, you just pick your subject and that's what you do. So most of the degrees, many of the degrees are, are three years instead of four. And the, the four-year degrees give you, they wind up with the, the fourth year as a master's degree or basically. All right, so you go there. And then my understanding is that
0: pretty straightforwardly after that, you go on to a PhD program. or is, Are there some hiccups or bumps in the road or, or deviations that I'm not aware of?
1: Uh, no, I went straight. I was, I I was like all gung-ho about a science career after my scientist,
0: scientist. I'm telling you, all right.
1: I, 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 I went straight to, to my PhD program after, after my undergrad. I, I, um, I was looking for people, I was looking for, for advisors who, who were theoretical ecologists and evolutionists and you know, I think as, uh, as I imagine, you can relate as many of us can, like when you're in, in that transition stage between age like 21, 22, 23, and when, or, or whenever you happen to start a grad degree, you don't really understand the, the professional landscape of, of academia at that point. No. You, you just have interest.
0: I had no idea what I was getting into at any stage
1: of it. Neither did I. Like, and and I, don't, I don't think anyone really does, and it, which is a, it's an interesting and somewhat po- problematic thing, I, I would say. But um, sure. I certainly didn't know. I just, but I knew that I wanted to study with someone who was uh, a theoretician, and someone who, who, who had worked in cooperation conflict. And also, I, frankly, I wanted to be in the Northeast. I wanted to come back and be closer to my family after, being, after living far away. And so, and that's, that's how I wound up, I mean, I would applied to Princeton to work with Simon Levin, um, who's, who's, uh, there's, there's, there's no, you can't really overstate his level of influence and accomplishments in theoretical bio- ecology and evolution. Yeah. He was a really superb, supportive mentor, someone who led us. His his group was really an amazing and is an amazing thing, and it's it's hard to appreciate it at the time because you're just like going, you're doing, like you're going to grad school and you're learning what the what the deal is with the profession, but the diversity of interests that was represented in that lab was just amazing. There were people working, so I was working on bacterial behavior. Uh, I was doing modeling. Um, Right, but other people in the group were studying. global biome distribution there were people studying uh collective behavior of of various animals um, there there was someone studying the evolution of or, or the the evolution of antibiotic resistance and, and and understanding it spread through hospital systems there was someone working on the evolution of nitrogen fixation and nutrient cycling dynamics i mean the, the, the diversity of interest was just extraordinary.
0: So is the common denominator there for uh, evolutionary theory essentially across all those projects?
1: Yeah, evolutionary or ecological theory or dynamical systems. Just the, 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 everyone okay. was was modeling things in one way or another. The, the, they had a com- they had a common language in terms of modeling technique. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the the way that they were applying it was was really highly variable. And I like I, I and I was all I was lucky also in grad school to have a. I mean right so one of one of Simons really I mean, one of the the many great gifts that he gives to his students is is that he he thinks carefully and understands what what they're really interested in and then introduces them to the right people to move forward with those interests and in my case he introduced me to Bonnie Bassler who is had who then became another central figure in my career
0: so I remember hearing about I think I read an article about Bonnie Bassler in this revolution about quorum sensing and bacteria, trying to understand how they become, how they make collective decisions. Right. Can you talk a bit about how you got integrated into her lab, if you would say that you did, and what your relationship with her
1: developed as? Sure. So Simon introduced me to Bonnie the first time. And uh, so, so bon- Bonnie has, a, has yet another. I mean, to say she's an amazing career is, is really an understatement. I mean, she, she's a, a really a force of nature, much larger much larger than life kind of personality and intellect. But, but she developed her, her, her lab and professional identity around collective behavior and bacteria. So it was known, but not very widely appreciated. The bacteria are not actually solitary creatures, which is the way that they were conceived of for a long time. They're, they're actually very highly interactive with each other. And what Bonnie's lab studied and studies is the, is the mechanism by which they communicate with each other. And they do this with a suite of signaling molecules that they secrete into the extracellular space. And then they monitor the concentration of these molecules to, to kind of get a sense of, of which and how many cells are around. And, and with that information, they make They make a lot of transcriptional regulatory decisions about what other behaviors they're going to execute at a a given time. So this kind of this mechanism of regulation is is used for many many different behaviors and it's important in many different contexts. So it's important for the way that they interact, the way the bacteria interact with each other, and in any kind of basically any everyday context, but also in the context of um, of of pathogen pathogenicity and 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 virulence so so it has a a direct connection to the way that bacteria cause disease in many cases
0: i feel like it's impossible at this point to avoid any longer talking about some of these central ideas that you and i have in common right yeah collective action public goods commons all these ideas yeah um because i think you initially reached out to me a while ago
1: i emailed you because because i saw that your advisor was eleanor ostrom and I remember I saw Ostrom talk at a small meeting that Simon organized. Simon, our advisors were friends and Simon invited a number of very very prominent uh, researchers to come for basically a closed session um, conference. It was maybe 15 or 20 people who were at this And, and he was I think knowing that he and my office mate, his name is Adrian De Fromans, who's a dear friend, uh, were interested in cooperation, he asked us to record it. So we were just kind of flies on the wall for this meeting, and wow. and that's when I that's that's when I met and and heard Eleanor Ostrom talk. So I, once I saw that that she had been your mentor, I wanted to talk to you about you know all of public this. goods. Yeah, all about it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean so. I mean, a little bit of background for folks who are listening, too. So you and I gave a talk together at least a year ago now, in which we essentially demonstrated that we essentially, we actually use the same concepts and theoretical framing for a lot of our work. This essentially being the idea of collective action problems. There being a divergence between what's in the best interest of a group and what's in the best interest of the individuals that make up that group. That's right. And it kind of blew my mind when I heard about bacterial quorum sensing, because what I'm hearing there is a way in which bacteria are resolving at least a coordination problem if not a collective action problem right but there's this idea that there's a public good and it's not really worth producing unless there's enough of you because you don't benefit from producing whatever they're producing unless enough of you are doing that. right and this you know I mean Lynn has written about this there's there's all this literature on public good functions that a lot of them are, have like step functions are non-linear. And a lot of things are like this in the world where it doesn't matter very much if one person does something, but it starts to matter a lot if a hundred people do that. Yeah. Right, like most any like most capital investments have this characteristic, that there are essentially positive externalities such that if I join a crowd in doing something, over time, the, the effects that that have are non-linear. So, if ten people speak English, it's not that powerful. If a hundred people start start speaking English, it gets more powerful. If ten people start to build an irrigation canal in the southwest u s where I worked a long time ago that's that doesn't help much. But if hundred people start building that together, suddenly you can, you can preserve a community. yeah, so you know you're kind of you you already know where I want to go with this. What really interested me about learning about that work and then about talking to you was. This tantalizing idea that um, there might be some, you know, in E.O. Wilson's term, consilience across biological and social scales. And I feel like I've heard you, you know, say this to me a couple of times, that the collective action, that the provision of public goods is the problem. It is the social problem. That if we're talking about social systems, it's almost... You know, it's interesting to ask yourself: Could you? It's to even meaningfully talk about a social system and social behavior. You can't meaningfully talk about it without talking about ideas of collective action and public good provision.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I do think that. I think when we talk about social systems, we're in either we're we're either explicitly or implicitly talking about that problem, about hierarchy hierarchies of organization and the conflicts of interest between the what what's being optimized at each level of the hierarchy right right or or what the what the interest is at each level of the hierarchy and it's the the problem is intrinsic to you know to to biology in general it's you know not a new thing to say like that's many other people have developed this idea in, in in the past and and with with theoretical rigor but it's 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 even a problem that underlies like the function of our bodies right like, you're, like our bodies are, are societies of cells that are- Resolving collective ca- action problems. That are cooperating with each other in, ex- in exquisite detail that we don't even fully understand yet. And, and, when, and when, that, when that fails, it's cancer, right? And, and, and so the, the cooperation problem is, is everywhere in biology. I think that's what makes it. It's that's a, that's what makes it such a, a fulfilling and 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 rich subject to be embedded in. So I feel really lucky to be able to make a living thinking about it.
0: Yeah, um, I mean the the person I've heard make this case most strongly, most consistently is David Sloan Wilson. And you know I have to say I, I've bought into it. I've always had a bit of a problem with what I perceive as a. At least somewhat artificial divide or barrier put between social and biological science. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that you know social scientists are scientists that study humans, right? Well, why? I know lots of scientists that study social behavior like yourself that don't study humans. So, to me, one definition of what we call a social scientist is, you know, we're almost studying like animal behavior. It's just that the animal is is us. Sure. You know I think there's a lot of under leveraged disciplinary knowledge um sitting there that's not being learned from across these disciplinary boundaries because of them
1: um yeah i mean i would i would i would tend to agree i mean i, th- I think that the the barriers are are not in, like in, intrinsic conceptually to the fields it's more that they're like it's 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 a function of the the kind of cultural history of the development of the, the development of the, those fields and also like we've talked about many times before the, the constraints on what can be done in, in the research domain, right? Like you can, you can perform your, your research using the techniques that you have available for, for human societies, but that doesn't include, for example, you know, making new mutants of people that lack some behavior whose impact you're interested in studying but in in bacteriology you can do that right like you can make a you can make a strain that is missing a gene of that is that is critical for a behavior of interest and see what the absence of that trait does in the in the experimental context and that's just the beginning of it right of course like you can you can because bacteria grow and divide so much more their generation times are are so so much shorter than than people so you can you can actually you can do parallel evolution experiments where you set up, you know, multiple replicate replicate communities and see if they evolve the same way over a given period of time. Like, there's there's, the the the, the kind of techniques that are available in the different fields are, are so different that I think different vocabularies and ways of thinking grow up around them, but but it, it masks, hidden similarities between them.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think to some extent. This is unavoidable. I mean, I think part of what's underlying these dynamics is the fact that human beings have cumulative culture where each generation can benefit from knowledge gained in the previous one and that we're extraordinarily good social learners, right? I think these are actually kind of defining features of us as a species, among other things. I mean, I think a lot of what you and I know, right? The reason we know as much as we do is because we're able, we were able to expose ourselves to other people like you were as you were just saying right you were talking about all these amazing people and a lot of what i think we you know a lot of what sometimes we call human intelligence is ultimately a function of your ability to socially learn and who you're able to socially learn from Mm -hmm. and so what that means though i think a fairly straightforward consequence of that is you know a big problem and people have talked about this like joe henrik Um, A lot of um, evolutionary anthropologists, biological anthropologists have studied these problems. If you're a social learner, one of the biggest problems is it's just like cooperation. You need to decide who you're going to learn from. You know, just as in cooperation, who are you going to cooperate with? Because you don't want to do that randomly. Yeah. But as soon as you, in order to solve that problem, you need arguably, in order to solve both problems, you need groups. You need people who are in the group that you're going to cooperate with or, or learn socially from. Particularly like prestige oriented individuals. You're going to learn more from them. You're going to want to probably. But if you do that, suddenly you've got people that you don't want to learn socially from and they're in the out group. Mm -hmm. And so I think part of it is, you know, we can't learn everything. So we have to decide who we're going to learn from. We've got all this equipment that we've been given to to optimize. I mean, this is what kind of you were talking about earlier is that human beings have this suite of adaptations that help us cooperate and learn from each other. But part of that is also equipment that helps us decide that I'm going to learn from this person, not from that person. And I think part of that, that that's inextricably linked to who's in, who's in my group and who's not in my group, right? And so these same group-ish dynamics play out strongly in science, right? I mean, I think there's kind of, I don't think it's a mythology. I think this is probably a straw man, maybe to say that there's a mythology that science is kind of asocial. But science is thickly tribal and group-ish. Partly for these reasons. Yeah. And I think, honestly, when I think about what underlies the boundary between, you know, what I'm calling social science and biology, it gets down to groupish dynamics that are everywhere you find humans. And so I, in this podcast, Stefan and I have talked a lot about the idea of boundary objects and boundary actors, concepts and people that are able to stand these things. Which is another, you know, topic that I really want to talk to you about because I've really loved some of the things you say about this in the context of our own interdisciplinary PhD program. But I think before we get to that, you know, I'd love to hear about your work coming from Princeton to, I believe, that your postdoc at Harvard and now your position at Dartmouth and how you developed your own understanding and use of these ideas in your work, right? So I'd love to hear now just about your work and how you use, how you study collective action problems, public good provision, et cetera, uh, in bacteria, as, as I understand it.
1: Okay, well, like I was I was describing er, describing earlier, I work with Simon in my PhD, and I work with uh, Kevin Foster and um, Joao um, Joviet at, at uh, Harvard on simulations of bacterial social groups of bacterial communities, and it's not it's not, not until recently, not widely appreciated that, uh, that bacteria are like we were saying before, very interactive, very social creatures. Right. And they have a, they have many, many different adaptations for, for both cooperating with and fighting each other. Um, the, the main way that I study bacteria is, is in the context of something called biofilm formation. And this is when bacteria, basically stick to each other or they stick to surfaces and to each other using secreted adhesive material, which we call matrix material. And when they do this, they constrain themselves in space and they constrain the way they they can access nutrients. They gain protection from external threats and they gain better access to uh, nutritious surfaces. So this is very, this is, Essentially ubiquitous in the natural environments like when you every time you step on the ground, every time you step on dirt You are you are stepping on a biofilm <laughs> every time you Every time you eat a meal you're feeding a biofilm inside your digestive tract At least as far as we can tell so far there's some there's there's some debate about the exactly the the, the preponderance of biofilms in, in the gastrointestinal tract
0: so can we Can we call biofilms a public good for a bacterial community that it's benefiting the whole group?
1: Well, I mean, that's yes and no. That's, that's actually, it's, it's, that's, that's kind of the crux problem of the fields. So we know that when bacteria engage in this kind of communal growth, they're helping each other, but we don't know to what extent, to what extent they're, they're openly helping everyone in their immediate neighborhood. Uh, and by everyone I mean all of the other bacteria in their immediate neighborhood, or if they're only helping their own clonemates, their own kin. Right. And these are the kinds of questions that we investigate. So like we we will we will use molecular genetics techniques to to tag the the adhesive matrix components that the cells secrete and see who's sharing what with whom. Mm-hmm. And on the basis of of those kinds of experiments, we can ask how does how does this kind of behavior evolve, and how does it how does it remain evolutionarily stable? And then we ask all sorts of other questions that are kind of peripheral that are that are in orbit of this of this process that bacteria do. So in the process, and my, my I feel very lucky lucky for my backgrounds because the theoretical training that I got from. My PhD basically informs the way that we d- design experiments, but for for the most part, my with the exception of one extremely talented postdoc, uh, Amelia Simmons, my lab is experimental. M is a computational biologist, but but we we use theoretical kind of ideas to to design our experiments, and we're we're in the process basically of of finding new ways to visualize new kinds of bacteria in this biofilm context in this social context that they have and then we just let the systems talk to us like we'll, we'll, we'll visualize them using um microfluidic techniques which are just a kind of a, a way to culture biofilms in a in a, a, a way that you can visualize them with a microscope and then we use confocal microscopy to, to visualize them at, at at a very high resolution and and then wait to see what the system tells us basically. Like wait for interesting phenomena to emerge from these and then and then target those for projects.
0: And a lot of the phenomena you're interested in looking at is as you were saying, who's cooperating with who, what strategies are used to implement that, and how is that cooperation preserved in a in an environment of otherwise substantial conflict?
1: Exactly. Yes. Okay. Exactly. And it turns out that I mean, the bacteria are constantly in conflict and in cooperation with each other that's my that's my take on our understanding so far there's there's a, a mixture of cooperation within and between species very widespread conflicts between species the, the the number of weapons that bacteria have evolved to to kill each other is really extraordinary and and we're along with many other uh, amazing researchers in the field we're we're trying to get a handle on on what what all of those um, Evolutionary and, and and mechanistic You know questions resolve how they resolve but we're and I'd say in particular we're interested in in the in, in how space How spatial constraints and how spatial structure influence the outcome of these problems? I, I imagine you've thought about this too in your work. I, I don't think we've talked about this in detail, but um but the, the physical arrangements of different cells is, is crucial, right? Because th- their, their behaviors are, by and large, secreted products. Like, they're their interactive behaviors. And so these behaviors, you know, their, their impact reduces with distance. And, as, and, and thus, the spatial arrangements of different species and of different strains with each other has a gigantic determining impact on whether or not a given strategy or behavior say some antagonism or some cooperative behavior um works or is successful and so and that's why we're so obsessed with bioinformation and with the way that these 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 matrix-bound communities are are formed, because the the structure the, the spatial arrangement of all of the cells with each other It has a big impact on on what the best strategy is for all of them to take
0: so the most famous book that Lynn Ostrom, who you mentioned earlier wrote was called Governing the Commons she wrote it in 1990 you know what what Lynn was trying to do there among other things was establish the conditions under which community-based natural resource management was viable which meant the conditions under which communities could get together and resolve the collective action problems inherent in using a shared common resource and avoiding the tragedy of the commons. Mm-hmm. So she came up with these design principles and the first one, which really was a two parter. So really two principles. The first one was there needs to be a boundary around the community that says who's in, who's out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, essentially to provide, to prevent free riding so that people can't come in and benefit from the, the, the beneficence of people in the community. hmm and the second part of that principle is that the boundaries of the shared resource need to be established, so that we know where the where the shared commons is and where it isn't.
1: Right? right. And so
0: I'm tempted I mean, to just want to map that directly onto what you're talking about at the bacterial level.
1: I think there are really interesting analogies to the way that we think about the evolution of of cooperative or antagonistic behavior in microbes of course microbes don't have the i mean at least you know not to our knowledge they don't have any conscious planning or you know they don't round table anything <laughs> um, b- but they have simpler versions of of what you're describing I, 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 so so as a as a concrete example we work on we work on a lot of bugs in the lab but one of them is vibrio cholera which is one of the the bacteria that Bonnie's lab works on so i learned all of my cholera genetics from from Bonnie and from her from her people. cholera, the the agent of the of the disease that uh, of of fame makes biofilms in the in the wild. so so outside of human hosts, where it grows as an oceanic, a marine microbe. and it also it, we think it's a little it's not fully known, it's a little bit controversial, but we think it, it at least at some points during the infection process it's making biofilms too. When I was a postdoc with Bonnie, like we did, we did a project on the way that it makes biofoams. And this was building off of work also from Fitnad Yildiz, who's, who's an amazing researcher at, uh, in California. Her group and her collaborators, collaborators did all these really amazing papers on, on how the individual components of the adhesive matrix of cholera work. And so we, we, we learned from their techniques and, and, and labeled components of the matrix and found that the, the cholera doesn't share its matrix outside of its, outside of its kin groups. So a single family lineage of cells will maintain a spatially coherent cluster via the continuous secretion of one of its matrix components which it doesn't share with even other cells of the same species. So it basically is maintaining the group boundary of the kind you're describing. And, and this boundary is useful for the, the protection of other cooperative behaviors that cholera uses in, in, in the oceanic uh, contexts. So I think the, I mean this is um, I'm kind of I'm being a little bit roundabout with this, but I think that the, the principles are the The principles are the same it's just that the the way that they manifest is is different but the principles are 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 the same
0: yeah i mean i feel like you know in the same conversation where maybe you once you know you once told me that you know this is the kind of the fundamental problem of social life the fundamental solution is creating spaces where cooperation can be preserved and protected against invasion
1: right so that's my interpretation of
0: and a lot of the research ends up being trying to figure out the ways in which that's done
1: yeah i mean that's my interpretation of the literature i mean there, there's 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 so many subtleties every and 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 so many like theoretical details that are really interesting that, are, that aren't really my domain but um but but i think there's there's generally pretty broad agreement that the cooperation the evolution of cooperation boils down to how do cooperative individuals Preferentially interact with each other. Yeah, like that is the if if there was like one sentence summary of the of that theory, that would that would be my understanding of what it is. But one of the amazing things about the fields, at least to my to my mind, is how variable the answer is to that question. They can they can preferentially interact in space. They can preferentially interact in time. They can preferentially interact by some kind of correlated signal, you know, like a green beard effect in right. Dawkins' terms, which has actually been shown in some microbes. And
0: Can you tell people what a green beard effect is? Because I think some people won't know.
1: Oh, sure. So the, so this was Richard Dawkins' kind of uh, thought experiment idea that, so the problem of cooperation is is preferentially interacting with other cooperative individuals, but how do cooperative individuals identify other cooperative individuals? So if the cooperative behavior is either very tightly linked or encoded by the same gene that also codes for some very visible signal, yeah like a green beard then then uh, that would be an easy way for for cooperative individuals to you know to find each other. I, I don't know that it's been demonstrated in any kind of metazone species but but it, but it has been shown t- t- to my it was convincing to me that it was shown in yeast in in my microbes. Uh-huh. So yeast have a... They ha, This was a study from Kevin Verstappen's group and and also Kevin Foster did this. was on this paper. They showed that yeast had this protein called flow one, which is a hook on the outer cell surface. And it only interacts with other hooks of the same kind. And cells that have this hook, they produce it under stress and they make these flocks, these groups of cells that are very highly stress resistant and if you don't make the protein you don't get to join the flock so it's it's basically that's the clearest demonstration that i think i've ever seen of of that effect
0: yeah it's interesting i've i've become pretty convinced of the this how generalizable this principle as a response to the fundamental challenge of social life as we're calling it for the purposes of this episode is there's a literature that I find really interesting and important it doesn't relate to anything you do I think, but on on the on transition management how do we how do we promote technological and institutional innovation away from a lot of the environmentally pernicious activities that we now have going on fossil fuel combustion et cetera and there's a really interesting theory in that literature that says in order to really innovate you need to create a space where the innovations can be safe from the competition and protected from the competition of the dominant technologies Mm. so you need to have a space where you can have you can develop the coordination and interactions among the different types of capital associated with with more greener technologies to develop because if you just expose them to market competition immediately they're not gonna handle it, right? Because they're they're 75 years behind these other technologies. And so the the importance of saying, look, if we want something to develop and thrive, it needs to have its some space. Mm-hmm. Whatever you mean by space, as you were saying, that actually can can mean several different things dimensionally. I mean, another um, interesting connection that's occurred to me across these scales of social and biological organization, right, is cooperation is not always good, right? I mean. Cooperation is how you get cartels, right? Cooperation is leads to all kinds of negative outcomes um, at the human scale. Sure. Right, and as you were saying, right, like a, a popular term for uh, a biofilm that humans know very well is plaque. Yeah. Right. So, in fact, you know, I understand a part of your work being when the and I'd love for you to talk about this for just a minute or two at least is you know how do we prevent cooperation if the products of cooperation among bacteria actually can be harmful um do I understand it really that that's been something you've also thought about
1: uh yeah certainly i mean i, I, I guess it, it it wouldn't be the first thing that I said about biofilms or microbial cooperation, but whenever like like when one group wins like someone else loses right <laughs> uh, like it, it, at least that's often the case and in in some cases, microbial cooperation is linked to virulence or pathogenesis or to tooth decay as you're referring to. So, so yeah, like the, one of the elements of our work that's more translational or more applied is, is, is the question of how to disrupt cooperation or disrupt community function among microbes that are causing problems for people. But, but I I don't want to leave like for, for people who are listening, I don't want to leave with the impression that, microbial cooperation in general is is bad for people because in most cases that's not that's not true so in most cases microbial biofilm growth is supporting nutrient cycling or it's supporting wastewater treatment or it's 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 doing so many things that are actually critical for the for the earth as we know it but there are some cases where microbial biofilm formation is is bad for us, and and it's mostly in the context of infection. And to that end, um, we're working with uh, uh, people at Dartmouth Hitchcock to to build some new proposals on how to underst- on how to visualize and, and understand microbial community formation in the context of wound infection, or or prosthetic implant infection. So this is work with um, David Jevsevar and Yale Fellingham and Leah Gatan at the hospital who are all really wonderful colleagues here we want to be able to visualize and and learn how to disrupt microbial biofilm formation microbial cooperation in the context of wound infections or or periprosthetic infections it's often it's it's a really hard problem because the first of all bacteria evolve quickly so anything you invent they will find a solution to and but the other problem is that they're They're very very resilient and so 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 in general we look I think, you know, it's early work, but we think for we think about looking for ways to Disrupt the physical adhesion or the the physical structure and again coming back to the spatial structure Point we look to we think about ways to disrupt that For the microbes because that they rely on it for their coordination with each other.
0: Okay. I mean, I think in popular usage, when we hear the word bacteria, it has a strong connotation, a negative connotation, right? It's, it's something we want to get rid of.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean that, that's, when, that's when they enter people's lives. Like when you get an infection or when, you know, like there's moles growing on your food or something, like that's, that's, used, that's a fungus. But, but still, like there, there's, you know, microbes are, I think, on average, viewed with a kind of disgust. Which is a shame because because they're actually they're helping us 99% of the time, <laughs> like they're not not only like in their role in nutrient cycling, like in their role in nitrogen fixation, like there's there's their the, the role in, in waste decomposition, and they're, they're, there's there's an endless endless list of, of things that they do for for the for the functioning of the Earth as we know it. Um, but they also are part of our bodies right? Like we have a microbiome. This is increasingly, increasingly discussed in, in the media. So it's so, so people will have heard of this, but uh, if you don't, at least from our, from studies with mice, if you, if you, if you don't have a microbiome, your, your body won't work correctly. Like your immune system won't be trained correctly as you grow up. Your brain won't work correctly. <laughs> like not like, like you like our bodies, we are, we evolved with bacteria as part of us. We're not literally inside all of our cells well actually i'll take, I'll take that back. mitochondria are, are were ultimately bacteria, so actually they are inside of all of our cells but um they're inside most of our cells, the ones that have mitochondria um, but but beside from that that point, there's we have we have a microbiome in many of our organ systems, and they play an important role in in our proper development and a, a role that It's not—it's not my specific expertise, but it's a—it's a role we're we're still learning a lot about, and and so, I think that, for the for the dramatic majority of the time, microbes are our friends. It's just that in in in, it's the cases when they're not that are the most visible. Visible, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's always the case, right? It's that the things that are helping us are frequently so invisible we take them for granted. We only notice things when they kind of go wrong that we start to pay attention and hopefully we pay attention in time. Yeah. So, I mean the last thing I'd love to talk to you about to switch gears relates to to how we met professionally we got associated through this ecology evolution environment society PhD program at Dartmouth, which is this interdisciplinary program
1: mm-hmm.
0: of a variety of scientists each studying something to do with you know what we broadly call the environment. And, you know, any kind of program like that is going to face discipline, is going to have to deal with disciplinary barriers. And I've been interested in some of your thoughts about this. One, something that you've said in particular that I found interesting and helpful is it will help people if they can understand the constraints that people in other disciplines face. As a way to kind of to internalize the fact that this is someone else doing answering an interesting research question and if you take the research question seriously well if you're going to try to answer that research question here's what you have to try to do to answer it i feel like a lot of the times we apply our own criteria to other people's processes Hmm. is one way i've interpreted that statement from you and i think it's you know this gets back to collective action problems in a way at least the the quality of the program is is a public good that we all share to some extent and to provide that public good we want to have a common understanding of what the program's about we want to be able to work together well so i'd love to just to conclude in the next next 10-15 minutes of our talk what are your own observations being kind of inherently interdisciplinary yourself how do we how do we get there from here right how do we implement that that principle that you stated, and how did you come up with that idea that we need to understand the limitations that, that each other face?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love this topic i mean I, I, and I, I I think the program is is just such a pleasure to be a part of you know and, and and there's there's frustrations and and pleasures with with everything so so that that kind of goes without saying but um the main reason i i came to Kind of think of it that way is, is, is because of a result of the transition that I made from ecology and evolution to molecular biology when I was a student. And I just saw at that point that there were certain kinds of questions that I had about, for example, population dynamics and what the stable states of, of microbial communities are and, and, and how their behaviors contribute to these that I brought into the lab at, when I was working with bonnie and and it took me a while, maybe like as long a couple of years to be able to communicate the these questions to to that group because they just they they were interested in other things by default they were interested in, for example, how different you know signal trans- transduction cascades worked. and so the kinds of problems that I was facing in answering my questions were different from the problems that they were facing in answering their questions. And, and I think that a mutual understanding of the difficulties of our work is an important part of the, the linguistic kind of currency that we use to make our communities, to make our research communities, and also just in maybe communities in general.
0: I mean, it does sound like a, a version of, of, the, of the kind of aphorism, you know, walk a mile in someone's shoes, right? Deal with what they're dealing
1: with. Kind of, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think that after that experience, I, I I think it's the case that if if you know if if you know what other what someone else's problems are, then it's a lot easier to understand why why they're thinking what they're thinking and what why they're saying what they're saying and why they're doing what they're doing. And definitely, yeah, absolutely. It's easy to forget it even if you've learned the lesson before. So, oh, it's one of these
0: lessons you got to, you never stop needing to learn that lesson, right? Because yeah. we always get, you know, you can learn it. And then 15 minutes later, you get a headache and you get sucked back into your own head and your own problem.
1: And there's, there's, I think there's also a fine balance to strike between, you know, our colleagues f- f- for all of us pushing each other to, to like reach beyond our, you know, what we see our current boundaries as. But, the, but there's, there's that thing that we should do for each other. But then there's also just empathy right like i can i can make a mutant bacteria i can make a mutant bacterial strain that can't move you in your research can't make a community of people where no one has legs that's not possible it's it's it's, it's even if it were possible it would obviously be like deeply unethical like there's you can't do it and so, and, and so, but we can use, uh, we can do that to ask all sorts of different research questions. Like what, how is this whole microbial community different if no, nothing can move? Right. You know, that's, that's, an, that's kind of an extreme example, but it's, but it's an illustrative one of, of how in, in each of our disciplines, we each have our own kind of spectrum of tools to ask and to answer questions. And if you're in an, if you're in an interdisciplinary space, it's it's really important to be cognizant of that and i think our like our our triple E S program is one one of the strongest challenges to that extent but because of the of, of how broad the disciplinary expertise is represented
0: yeah definitely it's like a lot of things right it's both a challenge and an opportunity
1: yeah but it's been i mean at first i was definitely i was i was i didn't know how to kind of think about being in the program because it i had never been in anything like it before but but you know it's really been a pleasure to, to to have you as a colleague and to have our our other colleagues as, as, as colleagues and it's, it's it's really it's just really a wonderful thing i think it, and, it, and it's it's a unique kind of gift of being at, at this institution
0: because I, I just
1: don't i don't it, I, I think there are very few other places where 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 it would happen
0: right yeah I mean that gets back to. Well, we didn't really talk much about the importance of size, but arguably some of it does involve being rather small so that you develop the social capital within the group. All right. All right. So I'll ask you one more question. What excites you moving forward in your own work, thinking about evolution, collective action, public goods and bacteria, and what excites you in the realm of interdisciplinarity? And what would you like to see happen in in each of those spaces? What do you want to work to make happen?
1: Oh, wow, okay. I've been really delighted by the, the surprises that I've encountered uh, since I started my position here. Like my, it's, it's really an amazing, wonderful thing to, to see the emergence properties of the, the, the thinking and the ideas of the students in my lab. This, my, my undergrad students, my graduate students, my postdocs, like the, the kinds of projects that we're doing now, I didn't envision when I got here. Um, so I'm excited about everything that they're doing and I have, I have, I have students working on the dynamics of multi-species infections. My postdoc is working on new kinds of simulations about gut microbiota ecology. Uh, I have, I have other students working on the, the way that predation works inside biofilms inside microbial communities, which is really, which is super, super fun. And basically every day, like we see new images, we see new data that, that we, we hadn't and we couldn't have anticipated the day before. So I'm excited about like all sorts of little details about the way these projects are going. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a larger, a higher altitude sense, there, there's a number of different disciplines that are converging in microbiology. One of them is, is ecological thinking. Another one is molecular genetics, which is a an an amazingly broad and elegant field. There's also new genomic sequencing techniques that are allowing for all sorts of analysis that couldn't be done before. There are new like metabolomic analysis of of what molecules are being secreted and and absorbed by by cells in microbial communities. So there's all sorts of new like technological approaches to, to studying microbial communities. And there's, Sometimes there are difficult days where the, the different languages these, these researchers speak don't match up exactly, which is related to the problem we were just talking about. But everyone, but, but, but there's been a shift, I think, um, psychologically or intellectually, that people are, are open to learning new languages that before they maybe wouldn't have devoted as much time to. So I guess I would probably end with that point, is that there's, it's a time of convergence of disciplines that mm. is not something I, at least I have really experienced before. And everybody's, everyone in, in each of the respective fields is very excited about it. And they're, they're, just, they're, they're just very curious again, like everyone's kind of turned back into a student, I would say like they're, they're, they're learning, everyone is learning new things to ask new kinds of questions about, about their, um, their problems of, of interest. And, and so I don't, I don't really see what I don't see how it could get a lot better than that, Mike. (laughs) Like it's, I feel really lucky. No, that's awesome, man. Yeah, I feel very, very lucky to earn a living this way every every day. I mean, you're. I'm
0: reminded so much of the time. I feel like we get driven off that space. I mean, it's a it's a pretty lucky space to be in for any amount of time. I used to I used to read when I was a philosophy major. Used to read a little bit about religious philosophy and there's a term that really has stuck with me over the years, which is, uh, it's just four words. It's it's Zen mind, beginner's mind, which is this idea that associated with the idea of Zen is a sense of maintaining the mind of a beginner, the mind of someone who's seeing things for the first time and who's attentive because they're seeing things for the first time, right? So when I hear you talk about maintaining curiosity, it's this idea of, oh, let's go and explore. Let's not assume that we know things. Let's not worry about what we're signaling to people around us. Let's just embrace this process together. Which, yeah, that is not an easy space to get to individually or collectively. So well done. <laughs> we're getting there,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. The Finding Sustainability podcast is a pretty small shop, so we don't really have a long list of producers to thank here, or really any list. You can find us at your local neighborhood podcasting app, such as Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher or Spotify. You can also find us on our website, ESSnetwork.net. And on this site, you can find information about other projects related to environmental social science that we're working on. Until next time.